Hi, everyone. Glad to see you. As Brandon said, my name is Jamie Moore. I serve as one of the elders and pastors here. And uh, I just want to add my welcome to Brandon's welcome to each of you. And if you're a visitor, we're so glad that you're here worshiping with us. Uh, We are continuing in our series on identity. And the this has been, a, it's been an interesting series. Would you say that it's been an interesting series? <laughs> well, the Lord has been speaking to us. And it's funny, you know, there's a, there's a sort of an axiom that teacher, one of the best ways to learn something is to teach it, right? <laughs> so I, I've been through the grinder on identity just as we've been teaching through this. Uh, and it's been beautiful. It's been beautiful. But our theme verse for this series is 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20. Paul writes to the Corinthian church, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. And that's an important thing, I think, in our culture right now. You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And the big idea of the series is this. We have a creator and a redeemer who has fashioned us and purchased us by his own blood. We are his, and he defines us, not the world, not our friends, not our family, not our accomplishments, not even ourselves. We do not define ourselves. We don't get that right. We have a creator and a redeemer. And we are his kids, and knowing what the Father thinks about us, will change everything. We've been in a mini-series, so it's been an identity series, we've been in a mini-series through Romans chapter 8, and which is a fantastic chapter. We've been in like six weeks or something already. So we're moving our way through it, um, and we're about to enter into a spot that prior to looking at this, I would have never considered this passage having anything to do with identity. But this message is entitled, Groaning for Glory. That part of our identity, part of who we are actually right now, is that we are people who are groaning for glory. That's what's in the text. So part of who we are. And I think this will actually help make sense of some of the things that you and I feel. Like in our culture, we feel in our bodies, we feel when we hear news, when we hear about unspeakable abuse and atrocities, and we just think, what? Part of that is groaning for glory. So we're going to be looking um, at the text from Romans 8, verses 16 to 30. The message is going to be in three parts. Number one, I want to look at just some initial considerations before we just jump into the text. Some initial considerations. Two, we're going to look at the text itself. This is Romans 8, 18 to 30. We're just going to move through that text. I want to close with some practical implications for us. And then I believe the Lord wants to just come and minister to individuals this morning. So let me pray for us, and then we will go after the text together. Father, we acknowledge you as king, as creator, as our father. We thank you for Jesus, our savior, who gives us access to you. We thank you, Holy Spirit. You are the presence of the Father and the Son here in this place. We thank you. Thank you for your word. 
Thank you that you have written, you've chosen to have your words written down for us to consider, to be challenged by and encouraged by. We thank you that you've given us your spirit to make the word come alive, to change us, to even cut into deep places. And I thank you for Paul. Thank you for the church at Rome. Thank you for this text. We give you this time. I ask that you will speak. That's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's read the text together. This is Romans 8. I'm just going to read starting in verse 16 all the way through verse 30. I just want to read the text, and then we will jump in. Romans 8, starting in verse 16. Paul writes this. He says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the revealing, sorry, of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. (laughs) For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind, what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Isn't the word of God awesome? (laughs) Okay, Uh, the task before me will not get done this morning. I'm just going to tell you that right now. All that's in this text, uh, we, I, I can tell you we're already going to have part two next Sunday. Um, too much goodness and too much realness in the text. So initial, a couple of initial considerations. I just want you to see verse 16 and 17. We've been in this identity. We've been talking about the infinite love of God, like this inexhaustible love of God for us. Mm-mm-mm. Doesn't it feel good? Doesn't it feel good? And then you look at verse 16, and it's like the Spirit of God, the third member of the Trinity, bears witness with our spirit that we're, that we're children of God, 
It's like, this is awesome. And if we're children, then we're heirs. We're heirs of God. We're co-heirs with the second member of the Trinity. This is awesome. And then what does Paul write? He writes, provided, uh uh-oh, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So some initial considerations before we jump into this text. Number one, suffering and glory are connected. They are inextricably connected in the biblical worldview. Let me say that again. Suffering and glory are inextricably connected and they are to be expected for the people of God. Suffering and glory are connected and they are to be expected. Here's what that means from an identity standpoint. Just because you are a child of God does not mean that your life will be perfect and you never suffer. Actually, it means that you should expect to suffer. I know that's not entirely popular right now in our culture, but God loves me. (laughs) But actually, there's a weird thing that happens that we get into orphan thinking where we do things for God. We expect that, okay, because I did this good thing, I went to church Sunday, so I should not experience any suffering because I did this thing and you love me. And then if I do suffer, then I start to walk around thinking God doesn't love me anymore because he's allowing me to suffer. Here's the deal. The son of God himself is the greatest example of suffering and being loved by the father. Does that make sense what I'm saying this morning? The one who is most infinitely loved. I know it's hard to even talk about. The one who is most loved actually experienced the most innocent suffering. So for us, when we say we come to faith in Christ, um, to say that means now it's unicorns, candy canes, cotton candy, and beauty all the time actually is foolishness. The one who is most infinitely loved by the Father actually walked through the most horrific of all suffering that any of us will ever experience. Actually, the sum of all suffering was found in Jesus, actually. (laughs) So just an initial consideration. I mean, Jesus says some things like this. You're my disciples. In this world, you will have trouble. That's what Jesus said. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Do you see that duality there? Okay, so first consideration, suffering and glory are connected and they are expected. Number two, there's a theological framework that I just want to make sure, it's just a really, really helpful mental model as you think about the Bible and as you think about the things of God. It's like, you know, like, it's almost like a hook that you create in your brain, and this hook, this framework allows you to put all kinds of clothing, other, other ideas on top of that hook. Does that make sense? I know I'm speaking abstractly here. But it's a mental model that allows you to process biblical information. And the mental model is this. The kingdom of God is already here, but not yet. Has anyone heard this mental model? Some people are aware of this. It's a framework that the kingdom of God is here and now. And not yet. And it works like this as if I could explain it so easily in one second. But it works generally like this. The kingdom of God is already here. It has been inaugurated by the arrival of Jesus. Jesus came, the kingdom of God came. However, that kingdom will not be 
consummated fully until he comes again in glory. That's what that concept means. Biblically, this is how theologians have come up with this. Jesus says things like this, Mark 1. He says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus would say the kingdom of God is here. He would heal someone and say, I healed this person because the kingdom of God is here. He would say in absolute terms, I'm here. The kingdom of God is here. And then he teaches his disciples to pray things like this. Our Father who art in heaven, thy kingdom come. Wait, what? If it's here, why am I praying for it to come? Does that make sense? Jesus said the kingdom is here. And then the disciples are like, okay, Jesus, teach us how to pray. He's like, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, your kingdom come. Bring your kingdom. And like, you said it's here. So he goes, it is here. And when I come back in glory, it will be fully consummated. That's the concept. Now, let me, let me get it into real terms. <laughs> real terms. This explains some of the things that go on in our heart. Like, you know those moments where you experience such love and devotion for Jesus and you're just like, I will never sin against God again. I can just, he's so awesome, right? I had these experiences where I'm just like, oh, this is awesome. I will never sin against you. This is amazing. I feel your nearness. I feel your tenderness. This is awesome. I will never sin against you. 25 minutes later, I'm like, I don't even feel him. I don't feel nothing. You know what I'm saying? Like there's something inside you're like, what is wrong with me? It's because the kingdom is here. The spirit of the living God dwells within right now. And I am not yet all that I am going to be, such that my emotions are fickle and my heart is not 100% for Jesus. I long for that day when my heart is 100% for Jesus all the time. That's that kingdom is here. He's here. He dwells within and not yet. I'm still dealing with sin. I'm still dealing with a body that breaks down. I'm still dealing with vocal cords that get tired and can't sing 24-7. I'm still feeling, I'm, I'm experiencing emotions where I didn't get enough sleep. So when I, when I get up the next day, I'm feeling off and not in the presence of God. Does this make sense what I'm saying? There's that kind of thing. It also makes the kingdom being already but not yet also gives understanding to the area of healing in our life. It's significant for the ministry of healing. It goes like this. The reason anyone gets healed is because the kingdom of God is here. If we pray for someone and their body is restored, it's because the kingdom of God is here. Like, for instance, when Jesus was at the tomb of Lazarus, he says, Lazarus, rise. And a dead man, dead three days, rises and walks out of the tomb. That's because the kingdom of God was there. But what happened to Lazarus after that? Lazarus died. Lazarus died. And actually, any healing that happens in this room or in this church or in this city or anywhere on the planet, any healing that ever happens is amazing and awesome. The kingdom of God is here. And we feel the tension of if God tarries, whoever just got healed is also their body is breaking down even from that point and they eventually will die again. Does that make sense? That's the tension that we feel with praying for healing. Like when people say, it's God's will to heal. I believe that. 
But if we pray for healing and they are healed, guess what? If, if, God, if Jesus delays returning, actually they will, their bodies will break down again and they will die again. This is the tension of the kingdom of God is here, but not yet. The full consummation of healing and resurrection is not yet. Does that make sense? I'm, try, I'm, I'm trying to help us feel that tension. Any, anybody that you're praying for for healing right now, you can pray with full confidence. <laughs> They will either be healed now or they will be healed when Jesus returns and they are fully restored. Does that make sense? So, for instance, I'm thinking about Rosie Elizabeth. We're we're praying for the Eglis. Little one. In the womb. 14, 15 weeks praying for resurrection. The kingdom of God is here. We can pray with full faith for her resurrection. And let's say that she's resurrected. The tension of the kingdom now and not yet is that we're, we're, we're standing in this tension. I'm, trying, I'm just trying to be really honest with where we're at. So we should pray with faith, yes and amen, either in this life or in the life to come. Little Rosie will be resurrected. We should pray with faith. But a part of praying with faith is an inward groaning of the tension of the kingdom of God is here and not yet here. Third initial consideration. I said initial, but it's looking like more middle. The good news is not come to Jesus and you will not suffer. The good news is come to Jesus and you will not be abandoned when you suffer. God will actually walk through suffering with you. That's the good news of the gospel, is the promise that actually God will walk with us through the valley of the, valley of the shadow of death. Not, I will take away all possible suffering from you. Finally, final consideration, there's a danger in trivializing suffering. I... I acknowledge the fact that whenever you wade into these deep waters, talking about suffering and glory and God's purposes, I acknowledge the fact that it's very easy for people to experience a pastor or a teacher saying something that trivializes their suffering or their pain. So I admit to that danger. I've listened to sermons. I've heard pastors and teachers say things, and I thought to myself, Does that person even know suffering? (laughs) The way they're talking, they're actually trivializing a very real experience that I've had. Does that make sense? Jess and I have experienced great pain. And it's so easy. There's a reason Job's friends did what they did. It's so easy the more that we talk to not speak God's words to people. Job's friends did a really great job for the first week. The Bible says they were silent. (laughs) His friends actually were amazing for seven days. They were just in his presence, suffering with him. 
But the more they talked for the next 20-ish chapters, it got worse. So I'm acknowledging that. There's a danger in trivializing suffering when we talk about this topic, but there's another danger. There's a danger in trivializing the suffering of the Son of God himself for us. When we are so obsessed with ourselves, I'm just saying this lovingly, I'm saying this about myself, there are times when we are looking so much at ourselves that we don't actually realize the greatest suffering that has ever occurred, the most innocent suffering actually was Jesus himself. And there is a danger in us trivializing the suffering of God himself by being so obsessed with ourselves. I'm just saying that lovingly, but it's true. So I want to encourage us this morning to look at God as we go through this text. So here's the text. <laughs> here's the outline. Number one, there's no comparison. That's verse 18. Number two, creation is groaning, verses 19 to 22. We are groaning, verses 23 to 25. God is groaning, verses 26 to 27. And then we have confidence in suffering and glory, verses 28 to 30. I will not get through all of this. I can tell you that right now. So let's begin. Verse 18, there is no comparing suffering and glory. Look at verse 18. Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul is saying, whatever suffering you have experienced and the collective suffering of all the people that you love that have ever been experienced, he actually says, it's not even worth comparing. It's not even in the same ballpark. You can't even talk about it in the same way. It's not even close to the glory that's coming. Now that's hard to imagine, isn't it? Because suffering is really real in our lives. You know like those moments when, when you go to the hospital? We got, we, got some doctors in, we got some doctors in the house. You know like when you go to the hospital and it feels like life stands still for you but nobody else? You know what I'm saying? Like your life literally just pause. And everyone's going about life. And it's, and it's this, this thing that happens in our lives where literally all, all we can actually do in that moment is just, just how do I survive this moment right here? And that's a very real thing. And the Bible says that actually if you took that and you tried to compare it to the glory that's coming when Jesus returns, actually, you, you actually won't even be thinking about that. It will be so glorious that you actually forget all of this suffering. Isn't that amazing? Not even worth comparing, he says, with the glory that is to be revealed. Not even worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And creation itself is groaning, verses 19 and following. 19 to 22. For the creation waits with eager longing. That phrase, that word, eager longing. <laughs> One exegete was saying, it's almost like creation itself is on its tippy toes looking for something. Waiting, waiting for something. I want to see something. I want to see something. Creation waits with eager longing for What? For the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. Follow me. This is earth itself. I could say like the entire universe, but 
Paul's not even thinking about the cosmos. He didn't even know about the James Webb telescope, right? So that's at least, that's at least what Paul is saying. The earth itself, <laughs> the earth itself is literally, has human characteristics. It's looking to see what glory is coming when the revealing of the sons and daughters of God at the end of time? That creation itself can't wait for that day. When Jesus returns, we see him, and the Bible says, we will become like him, for we will see him as he is. Actually, we will be completely restored. Our bodies will be reborn and made new, perfect bodies. Did you know that all of eternity is a physical reality? Did you know that? Eternity is a physical reality. There's a new heaven and a new earth with a physical body, and it's a physical body that has zero decay, no wearing out, perfect, strong, forever. Magnificent beards for all the guys, right? <laughs> forever. Some of y'all are like, nah, I'm good, I'm good. Some of your wives are like, nah, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. And actually, the earth can't wait for that day. Let's keep going. Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Who subjected creation to futility? The answer is God himself. Because God has subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. The effect of original sin actually corrupted all of creation. So it's Adam and Eve and original sin, rebelling against God, brings, original, brings sin nature to all humanity, but it's not just a human problem, it is a creation problem. The literal universe is broken now because of the sin of humanity. Does that make sense? So actually all of creation has is, is got this, like stuff's not right. Like things aren't working the way they're supposed to. And we feel this. Like if you watch the news or read the news, you feel that, right? That feeling of like, what is happening? All of creation, according to the word, actually is, is like, this isn't right. But it's interesting, creation knows something that we don't, or some of us don't. Creation is looking forward to the day when Jesus returns and makes all things right. Creation is longing for the day when Jesus returns and actually restores physical reality <laughs> to perfection. He says, this whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. But it's not just creation groaning. We're groaning, verse 23. Not only the creation, but we ourselves we with the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it 
with patience. Look back at the end of verse 23. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons and daughters. Now, didn't, the, didn't Paul just say that we have received the spirit of adoption? Do you see the kingdom is here and not yet? You see it in the text? It said we've received, we're adopted. This is true. Yes and amen. We are adopted. The spirit has come inside of us. And yet the text here says we're groaning inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons and daughters. And then he qualifies it. What, what does he mean by this not yet? The redemption of our bodies. Everybody knows, especially the older that you get, that this thing is wearing out quick, right? There's that feeling of like, dude, what is wrong with me? I used to be like, you know? Or we see people, let's, let's, let's heighten the intensity, or we see people in our life that get terminal illness. I'm like, what, what is this? Whoa. God created something good and perfect. And these bodies are just wearing out because of, because of sin, because of original sin, such that we've grown. The feeling that you get when you hear news of terminal illness or you hear news of someone dying or, or on their way to dying, that feeling is actually good and right to feel. It is groaning that this isn't right. And the truth is, Christ is coming to make it right. And when he comes, he will wipe every tear from their eye, Revelation 21, in such glorious refashioning and beautiful restoration that it won't even be compared to the suffering that we are experiencing right now. We groan inwardly. And not even just ourselves, God himself is groaning, verse 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings, too deep for words. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words. That is one of the most encouraging things I've ever read when I'm suffering. <laughs> Sometimes when we experience suffering, we think, I'm alone in this. You know that paused thing where you feel like everyone else is going about their life and your life is on pause Here's the deal. God himself actually is groaning with you. That's what the Bible says. He is no stranger with suffering. He actually groans with you in this moment. Now, I just want to say, just briefly, this groaning of the Spirit is not simply tongue speech. But praying in tongues is a part of this. As you know, we believe in all the gifts of the Holy Spirit. One of those gifts is praying in the Spirit. That is, praying in a language that one does not understand. Paul says that your mind is actually unfruitful as you pray in tongues. And it's a regular practice of mine. 
to pray in tongues. And I found it hasn't always been. It hasn't always been a regular practice. But it has been a regular practice in recent days. And I've found that when I don't know what to pray, there's that feel, like, you know, when you're praying and you have this feeling like, I, I don't know what needs to be prayed right now. I'm actually going to be praying in the spirit. And this spiritual gift is a gift whereby the spirit is praying and my spirit is praying together. That's what that gift is. So there are times praying in the spirit that the spirit is actually groaning and that I'm praying in a language that I don't understand. And there is a groaning of intercession to the Father and to the Son that I don't mentally understand. That's part of that groaning. So that is a part of this text. I want to acknowledge that. Also, you know those times when you're in your bed and you are physically groaning in suffering? That's also the spirit groaning within you. I just want to say that. When you don't know what to pray and there's that just weeping that the Spirit of God is groaning with you in this suffering. I'm going to give some, impl some practical implications and then we're going to be finished. I read this quote literally yesterday afternoon. It's by a pastor named Dane Ortland. It was on Twitter. I couldn't believe that I read it. Nothing really good is on Twitter, let's be honest. This is what he quoted, or someone quoted him. Here's the statement. Your suffering doesn't define you. His does. Let me say it again. Your suffering doesn't define you. His, that is Jesus's, does. It's very tempting from an identity standpoint. It's very tempting to identify with our suffering. And I'm not, I'm not making light of that, that we identify as someone who suffers in this way, someone who has this illness, someone who experiences this brokenness in their life. I identify myself at times as what I am experiencing in this suffering. But the biblical worldview actually is we are identified primarily in the suffering of Christ for us. Listen, Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane is, is bowing before the Father. And what is, what is Jesus asking of the Father? What's he saying? I, I don't want to do this. I actually don't want to do this thing. I'm a beloved son. <laughs> I know that you love me. I don't want to do this. Yet not my will but yours be done. And he's sweating drops of blood, the Bible says. In the garden. And abandoned because the disciples are falling asleep. He's alone, suffering. He's unfairly imprisoned, tried, whipped, beaten, and crucified. Innocently. You know that thing inside of us where you hear the story of specifically a child being abused and something, it's almost like at a different level, right? You know what I'm saying? Like the more innocent, the more innocent the person that suffers, there's something actually that rises from a justice standpoint, right? But actually, Jesus dying on the cross for the sins of the world is the ultimate innocent one. 
It is the most unjust. It is the most not right. Like literally, Jesus on the cross is the most unjust thing that has ever occurred, including what has happened to you. And what does Jesus say on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The sin of the world, literally, the Bible says that he became sin. Jesus became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The wrath of God on your sin and my sin is poured out on Jesus in our place such that he is forsaken by the Father. He has been pre-eternally connected to the Father and he is forsaken by this Father for you and I such that Jesus then looks at us and says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Actually, as you walk through suffering, you will never be abandoned by God because Jesus was abandoned by God for you. You will never be forsaken because Jesus was forsaken for you. So your suffering doesn't define you. It is the suffering of Jesus for you that defines you. Second implication. Hmm, This is hard. Consider Jesus himself. (laughs) If I knew, if I'm Jesus and I'm creating everything, including all the nerve centers on the body, and I know that I'm going to be crucified, and by the way, in a particular time period where the Romans are in charge, who sadistically know the most pain, like they've done experiments to figure out what's the most painful way to kill somebody. And if I know and I actively create the nerve endings that are going to create the most possible pain, can you imagine? Like if I knew the Romans were going to nail right here, I would probably like make like a little loophole so it doesn't hurt so much right there. You know what I'm saying? But actually... He went and created the pain system even knowing that he was going to experience it for us. Before time, before sin, before original sin, before our rebellion, he literally created the body in such a way that when you're crucified like that, you're probably going to die of asphyxiation, of suffocation. And for love for us, he created those nerve endings anyway. He is with you in your pain, friend. He is suffering with you, and he is groaning with you. Final implication. There's a fascinating story in the book of Exodus. God is speaking to Moses, and he says this. He says, I have heard the groaning of my people, and I have come to rescue them. The the people of of Israel were in Egypt, enslaved, unfairly treated, and according to God, their cries to him were groanings to him. And God says, I heard their groaning, and I have come to rescue them. And this is the same God 
He was then. He's the same God now. And I want to encourage you. When you are groaning, seeing the injustice maybe that's happening in your life or in someone else's life, and feeling the pain that you hear the groaning of God with, with you. Groaning, interceding, making plans to rescue you. And that rescue looks like a lot of different things, doesn't it? Sometimes that rescue means Jesus returns. And we're fully restored. Sometimes that rescue means actually we experience death. And then resurrection. And we're going to talk about that next week. But I want to encourage you. What does it mean to have the triune God groaning with you as you suffer? Hearing your groans and groaning with you.